Hello, hello, everyone. This is Raghu Marcus, and this is a new edition of Ramdas here and now. We've gone way back into the archives to find a wonderful piece of a talk that uh, really goes over a couple of different subjects in this talk, and it's from a series called Being Free Together, and we will put up on uh, the Be Here Now Network Ramdas podcast page just exactly where this particular ta- uh, uh, excerpt is from. But first, can I ask everyone, I'm, I'm going to do this really uh, quickly and gently. Uh, can, I just want to ask everybody, uh, the, the Be Here Now Network is now up uh, one month, approximately with all of the wonderful family of uh, teachers that we have up there, thought leaders and podcasts. And we've been putting up uh, pretty wonderful blogs now are coming up, and we're going to be adding a lot more really interesting content. A lot of work is going into this, as you can imagine. And uh, without belaboring this whole support deal, I'd like to suggest one thing. I I made two suggestions last time. This is a repeat of one of them. And that is, it's so easy to just take that Amazon... Because I hear every day, people are going, yeah, no, I just bought this great thing from Amazon. I just brought a... I bought a a new... uh, Not refrigerator. Air conditioner. Somebody bought one of those home air conditioners that you can just put inside the room. You don't have to have it, you know, be placed in a window and framed out and all that stuff. And I hear all these things and and it it's so easy to go into Be Here Now Network, go to the homepage, you see the Amazon link, just grab that link and uh put it into your bookmark. Uh saved bookmarks and it's always there. So whenever you want to buy anything from Amazon, you just hit that bookmark. Amazon, and it will directly give a little percentage of whatever it is you buy on Amazon to the Be Here Now Network, which goes a long way to helping support what we're doing and also helping with the teachers because they get uh, honorariums from, uh, with, uh, from the work and the podcasts and the talks that we grab from them and so on. Okay, so yeah, nothing more than that. Just want to encourage. There's a lot of you out there, tens of thousands of you, that are listening, and it's just uh, Jesus. Even just ten, twenty percent would create a whole uh, new atmosphere of uh, of us being able to have enough wherewithal to. Uh, there's a lot of people involved that we have to give them right li- livelihood, obviously. So. Uh, or you can just go hit the donate button too and do a recurring donation. Okay, that's it. I said it would be short. It was short. Maybe not that short, but short enough. So, okay, talk about things that are difficult though, all right? Ram Dass talks here about disturbing, seeing disturbing emotions as emptiness. I mean, if anybody can do this, I'd like to see them uh, just uh, without... Um, doing maybe a three, a couple of three, I just heard, I just met somebody, a young man, a uh, Tibetan Buddhist, who did two consecutive three-year uh, meditations. Three years, that's six. 
he was in a pretty good place. And maybe he can see what Ramdas is talking about here very clearly. Any disturbing emotions that may arise is wisdom. Wisdom. The moment you relax to your natural mind. So when you relax to your natural mind, every disturbing emotion that may arise becomes wisdom. You look directly into it. You don't deliberately reject it. You regard it or regard it as a fault. You don't indulge in it concretely or regard it as a virtue. That's funny, eh? I mean, I I do you ever anybody out there? Yeah, I have had myself where I've gotten uh angry and I um there's some weird ass place in there that I actually think it's 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 like a power. Well, it is powerful. But it's something, you know, virtue, I don't know if I would connect it with virtue, but I connect it with something good that I have. It's so weird. So when I read this, I went, Jesus Christ, I can't believe that. But uh, this would be difficult stuff, right? Disturbing emotions, to see them as emptiness. And, and, and everything that arises, it's, it's, of course, it is an opportunity. So that's what mindfulness is all about. Uh, but boy, difficult, right? I mean, today I just, uh, you know, what did I do? I freaked out about something. Oh yeah, a website wouldn't accept my credit card, which I knew was good. And I was like, I I had a couple of epithets going on there. And, uh, you know, and I've been doing this for decades and that's still, still happening. Uh, anyhow, very, so that's why he said, don't indulge in it concretely regard it as a fault, reject it, just that kind of open spaciousness. Very difficult. Uh, Ramdas goes on to talk about balance and patience, which um, I, I love this part of it. Um, I, he says, I experience my life as a dance of balancing, of cultivating the qualities of spaciousness, of equanimity, or peace, or happiness, of happiness. That is, a, you know, isn't that a perfect statement of what we all can have as a mission in our lives? Uh, very much so. And by the way, uh, it's he he's, he mentions this whole thing about balance, and uh, we have this is another commercial. I'm sorry, but we have this great course that uh, we curated out of a lot of the podcasts that we've done over the years. Uh, around, it's called A Life in Balance, and it's going to come out with our app on the Be Here Now Network, the Heart Mind app. I don't know. I had to say that. Um, so, uh, he talked about being afraid of the passions of life because they take us away from balance, and that fear, of course, needs to be transformed. And um, another interesting thing that he talks about here, and something that I, I, I have gone into, which is, you know, when you're on the spiritual path, uh, because we're so used to being told that the power of the mind in the West is supreme, so once we get onto the spiritual path, then there's a lot of denigration of the thinking mind and the intellect. And he says, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater and honor and delight in the beauty of the intellect without being trapped by it. Uh, Another very difficult thing to do. Uh, But, uh, you know, Ram Dass has said many times before, uh, the intellect is a beautiful servant but a horrible master. We all know that one. 
Uh, and the uh, second half of this uh, talk that I've excerpted uh, is about making human relationships your yoga. So um, it's about helping each other wake up. And that's so primary in our you know, relationships of uh, uh, marriages or partnerships and then in our relationships in business and uh, with whoever it is that we meet. That's, of course, another difficult... This is a trifecta of super difficult things to absorb and act on in a truthful way without just saying stuff. You know, it's meaningless unless we're actually uh, acting it out. And, of course, uh, and, and at the same time, it takes practice to get this shit straight. So... Um, that's very much part of the parcel. Uh, what else? Can we... Um, can we... Uh, so sorry for my doggies. Can we have needs without really thinking of them as who we are? And that's in, in relationships. Because there's so much of that exchange of needs with another person. Uh, can we really get to a point where we don't think of those needs as who we really are? That's a key thing. Uh the possibility, and here's um, here's where he tells this fantastic story. I never heard, but can you believe I haven't heard this story before after listening to this stuff for forever? The possibility of being with people who are not trapped, but are always living in that spacious awareness. Uh, and he gives us an example of, of a being like that is Ramana Maharshi, and who's who. It's just the the essence of the combination of compassion and emptiness is Ramana Maharshi. And he tells this, I'm not, I wouldn't even dare to try and tell this story, but it's, you've got to listen, get all the way through. It's to listen to this is about three quarters of the way through this incredible story. Of, I've, it's just wonderful. Ramana. Um, and it's a miracle story and miracles, as he says, remind you, it's not the way you think it is. Okay. So, that frees us to think about, well, how is it? And that's why they do these things, Pe beings that are in in Ramana Maharshi's uh, state. you They do these things so that turns your mind to go, okay, so what I thought was reality isn't reality, but what is reality? How is it? And you wonder, how is, how is it? You're hooked. So... Another great talk here uh, from Ram Das, uh, and um, please keep tuning in to everybody else on the Be Here Now Network. Krishnadas, Joseph, Sharon, Jack—they only have first names now because I, I, I'm constantly reminding you all of, of some of the wonderful pod, podcasts that are Lama Surya. Surya Das and Danny Goldberg. Uh, uh, he's got some of the most fascinating guests that he has. And Chris Grasso, our young Buddhist teacher. And what I do at Mind Rolling. And so, please, spread the word. This is all brand new. We're trying to get it launched. Get up on social media. Join the Be Here Now Facebook group, Be Here Now Network Facebook group. And if you're on Twitter, do that as well. We're trying to build this thing. So enough said here.
Here it is, Ramdas, here and now from the Being Free Together Talks. Uh, this is a quote from a chapter called Naturally Liberating Whatever You Meet. On the one hand, when you regard disturbing emotions as emptiness, your practice turns into taking emptiness as the path and not the disturbing emotions. Thus, your practice doesn't become the short path. On the other hand, if you indulge in the disturbing emotions, thinking they are something concrete, it's like eating a poisonous plant and is the cause which binds you to samsara. Any disturbing emotion that may arise is wisdom the moment you relax to your natural mind. Look directly into it. Don't deliberately reject it. Regard it as a fault. Indulge in it concretely or regard it as a virtue. The more I live my life tuning to Dharma, attempt to live life dharmically, live my life and see it becoming more dharmic, certain words come through really strongly, like the word balance and the word patience. I see myself going through life in which phenomena appear, and some of them captivate me immensely. And my awareness goes into a thought relationship to that particular phenomenon. And at that moment, I lose some balance. I lose the spacious ground in which that phenomena exists. And then sometimes I keep letting go of thoughts, letting go of thoughts, letting go of thoughts, until there is just awareness. Resting in that, you lose the world. And we've talked about the fire, which fires purify and which fires burn. At different moments, one fire that would burn at one moment later will purify. Depends on how ego-involved or how invested you are in the particular phenomenon as it arises. But I experience my life as a, a dance of balancing, of cultivating the qualities of spaciousness, of equanimity, of peace, of happiness. But I noticed that there were certain stages in my development, and they're still going on. And it's left over in a way from my renunciate models, where I haven't yet fully re-entered into the passions of life, because I'm afraid of them because I'm afraid they will captivate my consciousness and take me away from my balance too much. And I realize you shouldn't be afraid of anything. I agree. But I am afraid. And what I see myself doing, that's one of those fires. I see myself getting closer and closer to the edge of my fear, of coming back into some passionate joy about something in the world something I would have been afraid to do for fear of losing my quiet spaciousness, and realizing that now my quiet spaciousness is still present, that it's still empty, clear, quiet. Like yesterday, and this is a beautiful exercise for me, I was doing interviews, and I'm doing one interview about every six or seven minutes. Now, many people have come for an interview prepare, they spend time thinking, what will they say? And they get it down to the kernel of the essence of the neurosis or the <laughs> kernel of the essence of the drama. 
the pain, confusion. And they hand me the kernel with all of its juice. And it's our kernel, it's our juice, it's our stuff. And it's my stuff as well as their stuff. I mean, it's just us kids here. I watch because my job in that position, and my job in life, but that position demands it, is that I keep that balance perfectly. That at that moment, if I don't open my heart to the fullness of what that individual's pain or essence problem is, what they experience is that I'm not hearing them, that I don't understand, that they're alone inside their predicament. Because I kept separate. I didn't allow my empathy, the passions that my empathy would engage, I didn't allow it to occur. So I open myself, and sometimes my heart breaks because a person's predicament is, is a heartbreaker. But then the other part of me is constantly coming back into the sky that you're going, the meditation we're going to do later, into that just awareness, just that presence that looks at the emotional states, works with them, doesn't push them, doesn't pull them, doesn't grab them. And that part of me becomes a mirror for the other person, for them to see the way in which they're caught. In other words, the two bits of information that my presence there is offering is one, the empathy, we're all in this together. And the other is, but we don't need to be caught. This is two bits of information. And I realize now more and more that what we offer each other as human beings, we offer each other an environment. And that exercise is keeping me in the environment of that balance. So that I'm an environment where if that other person wants to come out and play from the pain and the suffering, here I am. And if they're in the pain and suffering, here I am. But there's nothing in me that's keeping them stuck in the pain and suffering. And there's nothing in me demanding they come out. And that's the interesting one. It's the interesting one about morality regarding other human beings' consciousness. Tim and I wrote an article back in 1963 for the Harvard Review called The Politics of Consciousness, in which we are arguing that each individual should have a right to do with their consciousness as they choose. And that's what a free system should allow. It's amazing how we don't do that in our society. But now I can see it. I see it particularly, for example, in the way in working with people that are approaching death. Because there is such a desire in somebody that is on a path of dharma to have that other person die your death. Die the death you think they should die for them to be liberated. And to me, I've learned over the years is it doesn't work. Because when you push against somebody, even the subtlest model in your head, they should be different than they are, awakens in them at a very unconscious level, pushing back. A resistance, a subtle paranoia. And I have noticed in my human relationships that as I want less and less from each individual, there is much less paranoia in them at a deep level, and they are much more available immediately. And the interesting thing is, what does it mean to be a safe space for another human being? A safe space means you don't have an agenda. But we have this tendency to have a model because we're trying to justify the way we're living our lives. So to me, that word balance is a really key issue. I mean, there are so many little balances we work with 
the balance between the kind of intuitive heart and the thinking mind. Christina was saying, as you get too much thinking, the energy goes up and there's a whole contraction in the system around thinking. And there's a tendency in the spiritual journey to denigrate thinking, to denigrate intellect, to denigrate analytic mind. And I think that we as Westerners, coming out of our history of having the intellect be the highest power that we have, and now as we're shifting the balance, it is important that we don't throw out the baby with the bath. And I think we are inclined to learn how to integrate these two things so that we can honor and delight in the beauty of the intellect without being trapped by it. As they say, the ego or the analytic mind is a beautiful servant and it's a lousy master. And you can sense as you look at the world conditions how the best of intellect, the best of the Henry Kissingers, don't solve our problems ultimately. Because our problems require a different level of wisdom. And we have worshipped knowledge rather than wisdom. And wisdom has in it a very deep compassion. Maharaji said, see everyone as God. The reason I'm saying all this is because you and I spend a huge amount of time in interpersonal relations. And the question I ask you, since you and I aren't going to monasteries to live our lives, since that's one of the things we do so much, wouldn't it be nice to make it a yoga? To make your human relationships your yoga. To make your human relationships the vehicle for becoming free rather than the vehicle to stay entrapped. And what is required is a shift in the way in which one looks at relationships, what they're about, what their function is. We have come out of a psychological morass. Freud and all of the personality people took us down a road. It's hard to appreciate how deep in it we are, how deep in the doo-doo of personality. <laughs> How real it all is. I mean, you all think you have needs that must be met. You all think you have personality identities that must be honored. And even as I say that, I can feel you get tight, defending your right to have those things. Isn't that true? <laughs> I can feel it in myself, too. You know, I have a right to be angry. Damn right I do. We'll wait. You know, there's no rush. When you finish that trip, we'll still be here. Because <laughs> awareness isn't in time. It's just here. You want to enjoy your neurosis? Enjoy. Enjoy. Have more. Have another helping. Really climb in. We have gotten so thick in it, and so you're either getting into it through abuse of this or that, or you spend the rest of your life getting out of it, which is all giving it that plane of reality so much juice. And you look at your relationships from the point of view of your separateness. How will you fulfill my needs? I'll be who you need me to be if you'll be who I need you to be. Now, that kind of symbiosis, is that's all fine if you don't get trapped in it. But if you get trapped in it, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare rooted in your sense of separateness. It's like feeding the illusion of the separateness, which is the root cause of the pain. So if the game is to be happy, the question is whether fulfilling your needs makes you happy. And whether fulfilling your needs makes you any happier than not fulfilling your needs. It's an interesting one. It does for the moment, there's no doubt about it. 
But if you notice that when you live on the realm of needs, the minute one is done, another one appears. You have a hierarchy of needs, so like a motivational hierarchy. I need food. Now I need ice cream. <laughs> Now I need television. Now I need a cold drink. Now I need some popcorn. Now I need to go to bed. If you notice that, you just go from one need to another, and each one is, ah, uh, and then, ah, uh, and then, ah, uh, and then, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Now, these are all going on all the time. We all have needs and desires. We all have all the stuff. But just like I'm not going around being a bald man, I am bald, relatively speaking. <laughs> to those of you that don't have eyes to see. <laughs> But my consciousness is not full of baldness. It's an also-ran. Sure. In my hierarchy of desires, if I have the power, yogic powers that Patanjali talks about, I'll create a beautiful head of hair for myself. As a whim. Just to, to <laughs> I did it on the astral plane, so those of you that can see know that that's... <laughs> and if you see the way in which people get encrusted in their personalities, you can look at somebody and the way they stand, the way they dress, the muscles of their face, the redundancy is staggering of a person saying, this is who I am. This is who, they're basically saying, this is who I think I am. This is who I think I am. This is who I think I am. So you see helpless people going down, this is who I think I am. This is who I think I am. Then you see bankers, this is who I think I am, this is who I think I am. You see car salesmen, this is who I think I am, this is who I am. Just laid back hippies, hey man, this is who I think I am. Hey baby, this is who I am. And everybody gives you a little matrix. They're walking down the street with it, out of the Doctor Strange comics, these huge mind nets. And the net goes out and it catches you. And you immediately go into the, I'll make believe you are who you think you are if you'll make believe I am who I think I am. So you don't even look to see who, they, who it is. You don't see God as your only friend. You don't see that could be God in drag. You see who they think they are. And you respond to it. And so everybody is going into the personality realm, making it real, and then interacting. And then looking at each other, and when you think your personality is real, that's all you see when you look at other people. You don't see the other planes of consciousness. I like the image of uh, the man in a rowboat rowing through the fog. And he hits another boat, and he screams at the other boatman, why don't you look where you're going? And the fog clears for a moment, and there's nobody in the other boat. <laughs> It was just floating. And you're left with... Because at that moment, the plane of consciousness shifted. There was nobody there. Well, imagine there isn't anybody anywhere. There's only one of us. There's just awareness. There's nobody. Who do you talk to? Can you and I enter into a dialogue knowing neither of us are real? Can we have needs without really thinking of them as who we are, where we're living? It seems to me that we come together through roles, through personality structures, through all these things. These are the vehicles through which we meet. These are the vehicles. The identification with the vehicle becomes a tremendous trap. And part of the yoga of relationship 
is to meet through the vehicle of all that stuff, but recognize that through the process of relationship, my relationship with you, let's find our way out of being trapped by that together. You help me and I'll help you. So that we can be in the roles in a kind of celebratory, free, playful way. I mean, take everything you're doing in your life, and instead of uh, characterizing it now as need and pain and problem to be solved, like I used to be with Tim Leary, and the world would be falling apart, believe me. All the cars out in the parking lot would all be broken. These were new cars we had bought. The furnace would have exploded. We were in debt, everything. And I'd say, Timothy, we have a problem. He'd say, how many times do I have to tell you, Richard, we don't have a problem, we need a plan? And it was just like a little flip of consciousness. I mean, I've had a series of friends who have helped me escape from my own mind again and again. It's a great blessing to have them through humor. I remember driving across the country with a friend once, and we were driving along, and I was busy being neurotic, getting somewhere and checking the oil and getting to the gorge, yeah. And, and we'd pass a store that would, uh, the, the Grand Union supermarket, and he'd say, Grand Union. <laughs> I'm looking on the map to find out where we're going to have lunch, you know, and he's busy with grand union. But it would sink into my consciousness as if from a distance. It would slowly filter its way in until, oh shit, you know. <laughs> Fly United. <laughs> Merge. <laughs> I need to do them all dead end. <laughs> just constantly flipping, flipping consciousness. I'm just playing with all of this stuff. So you, just to think about relationship as yoga. I mean, uh, my history of being a therapist and having clients was that during that time, my psychodynamics were such that I was so not resting in my being but in a feeling of inadequacy, psychodynamic inadequacy that was fulfilled through proving myself through the world and in other people's eyes, something that I'm sure somebody here understands. When I finally got to be a therapist, I really needed to be a therapist. And I needed my patients to be patient. They were called patients in those days. And I needed to be curing them. I didn't need to cure them because then they'd leave me. And then I'd have to go find another one. So I needed them to be being cured and be deeply appreciative of how I was curing them. But I needed them to stay a patient. I mean, I was going to sit at the side of the desk with the knee hole, and I had the clipboard. I mean, you just think of this pathology now in terms of where we've come in the years since then. This was 30 years ago. But I realize now when I look at my dynamics, how punitive I was of somebody who came to me who was strong, who didn't really need me in that way, who wanted to become free. I mean, I, I say kiddingly, but it's not so funny that if I in those days met who I am today, who came into his office, I would hospitalize him. 
who I am now would be such a threat to who I was then. So I invite you to examine the way in which your identity with your roles and your personality dynamics are creating a very rigid system with other people and whether or not you are using the relationships in a way to get free from that. First of all, do you realize you're entrapped in them? I mean, I wrote a chapter in How Can I Help called Helper's Prison. The way in which you get into helping because it makes you feel righteous, it relieves suffering, it's all good things. So you get into, I'm a helper. And I realized as I examined the dynamics of my own helping and the helping of the people around me, how disempowering this was to everybody else around them. How it, in, it needed helpless people to help. And I was seeing how you could give something to somebody in one way where you're identified with the giver which forces them to be the receiver. Or you could give somebody to someone and yet not be caught in giving and receiving, but just be in shared awareness. It's like when I give these beads from my right hand to my left hand, the right hand didn't get caught in giving and the left hand didn't get caught in receiving. There was no giver, there was no receiver. And yet there was a giver and receiver. That's the key. There was no giver and receiver, and yet there was a giver and receiver. How do you play the roles? How do you have the needs without being trapped in them? And the first part of it is, as Gurdjieff said, to realize you're in prison, to realize you are trapped. Not really, but you are, you are thinking you are trapped. And what that appreciation does is it changes the way in which you look at your life experiences. I remember with, um, I've talked about this many times, but I was with Emmanuel, my, and I said to Emmanuel, what am I doing on earth? Who made this terrible error? I mean, what am I doing on this plane? This is nonsense. These are all these rascals and brigands and lothful people and lustful people. I don't belong here. I'm much too pure for this. And he said, Ramdas, you're in school. Why don't you try taking the curriculum? That fascinated me. That was a nice way of putting it. It's a nice way of putting it. It's the same thing about the issue of coming into your passion. Or as Alan Watts once said to me, Richard, you're too attached to emptiness. I mean, I was pushing away the form too much. And the form becomes the curriculum. The form is the projection of the mind, which forms you see. That's your karma writ large. And the issue of extricating oneself from those clingings, not to be not in them, but to be in them and not in them. Now, you have the possibility of being with other people who are not trapped, who are always in that spacious awareness. You saw two of them on the television last night. Ramana Maharshi's beautiful example, just very, always so simple and present and loving. That blend of compassion and emptiness, that's the way those come together. Let me just tell you one little story. I was in uh, Madras, I believe, and I met a man who was in his uh, 50s, I guess, and he had grown up as a small child around Ramana Maharshi. He used to sit on his knee and all that. And then he grew up and he became an army officer, and now he was sort of retired or something like that. And he said, one day, he said, uh, an English gentleman came to the ashram. He said, uh, this English gentleman was the head of a large set of businesses, and one of his, he was from England, but one of his set of businesses was in Madras. And the businessman was having trouble sleeping, and he was very agitated and very upset. And the manager of his Madras store said, a business said, 
you should meet this saint at Arunachala, Tiruvannamali. And so the Englishman agreed, and he flew over to India in a flying boat, as the story was told, whatever that means, I guess a seaplane. And uh, he came to Madras, and his manager took him to see Ramana Maharshi, and he was going to stay there for several weeks. And he came into the hall, and the hall was silent, everybody was sitting there, and he sat down, and nothing happened. Right Now, this is a very successful businessman. And uh, he started to get more and more agitated. And it was about 15 minutes before he couldn't stand it any longer. And he stood up and he was like, I'm leaving here. This is silly. I can't spend my time this way. And Ramana Maharshi, who very rarely talked, said to him, Sir, before you leave, would you do me one favor? And Ramana Maharshi said, Yes. Would you be kind enough to write a note to your wife? What a bizarre request. All right, if that's what you want. They brought him paper and a pen, and he wrote, Dear Hilda, I didn't find what I wanted here. I'll be back on Tuesday. Did you water the plants? And has Doris gone to the dentist? Signed, Henry. And he finished the note, and Ramana Maharshi held out the hand, and the note was getting, Ramana Maharshi folded it, and he put it up under his buttock, which was naked. And he said, "Um, would you be kind enough just to stay with me for five more minutes? The man said, all right. Sat down. And they sat there for five minutes. Then Ramana Maharshi got up, and he started to shuffle out of the room. And as he passed the man, he handed him the paperback. And then he went out of the room and the man said, like, what kind of crap is this? What am I doing? I've come here. This guy's mad and insane. And he looks down at the paper and it's on a different piece of paper. And he opens it up and it says, Dear Harry, I'm sorry you didn't find what you want in India. I have watered the plants. Doris has gone to the dentist. I would write a longer letter, but the tall man with the turban who brought you a note is insisting I answer very quickly. Uh, Signed, Hilda. <laughs> now, those are, those are cheating. Those are, those are miracle stories. They're really not anything at all, but it's just fun to hear a story like that, just to realize the game is played on many levels. Shirdi Sai Baba, not Sacha Sai Baba, but Shirdi, the old Baba. He said, I give, he was a miracle, Baba. He said, I give people what they want so they'll want what I give. Because you realize that freedom has nothing really what to do with miracles at all. Miracles are just reminding you that it's not the way you think it is. And that frees you a little bit to be able to wonder, how is it? When you wonder, how is it? You're hooked. <laughs> <laughs> So you enter into a relationship with another person if you're lucky. It could be a friend, it could be a partner, it could be a fellow employee, it could be somebody you meet once a month or once a week or to study with or something like that. Will you enter in with the contract, let us help each other awaken. Let us help each other remember together. Let's use our relationship to remind ourselves that we're stuck, that we don't have to be stuck, that we are already free, we're just busy being stuck. 
And these are very, very precious relationships. And they are very rare. I wish there were more of them. I wish we all had them all the time. But they are rare. And a lot of people who say they'd like to enter into that don't really want to. They just want to be somebody who wants to want to enter into it. (laughs) And that's most of us. Because you come to the point where you are so familiar holding on to who you think you are, your psychodynamics, that you take the, even the fancy contract to awaken and pre, and use it in the service of your psychodynamics. I'm helping you awaken, for God's sakes. <laughs> You're trapped. And I'm free, and I know I'm free because I see how trapped you are. Damn it. <laughs> I love it. Oh, boy. I see more neuro... Yeah, well. <laughs> I think when you're working with another person in becoming free, or being free to get, being free together, because the becoming is another hype. It implies that you've got to go a certain distance. Like people say, you've been at this for 30 years. What hope is there for me? I'm only new. Ramana Maharshi is a good example, wasn't he? Was he 17 years old? He hadn't read any of this stuff. He didn't go to Dharma talks. He didn't meditate. He didn't do anything. He just lay down in his uncle's study and got enlightened. <laughs> oh, he realized he was enlightened. That's a good model. It's a good reminder that, the, that there's no time involved in the process. So that each moment in a relationship is the moment for us to be just here together, dancing through the form. It's like the form of lecturer and listener. Can you hear without getting caught in listening? Can I speak without getting caught in speaking? Can you and I be together through this dance of talking and listening? Does this talking and listening separate me from you because you are them? Or am I in the world of us sharing this together? And is it bringing the us closer together? I really see, and I've, I've, I've seen, that as, as I'm resting in being more deeply, like I have all these little aids, mechanisms, things like these, techniques to remind me. They're all traps. They're all traps. All methods are traps. I mean, meditation is a trap. You don't want to end up a meditator. You want to end up free. Judaism is a trap. This is a hard one for those that are Jews. You don't want to end up a Jew. You want to end up free. Boy, I was just in Israel and I I tried saying things like that. This is... <laughs> Sure, then you delight in all the forms. You delight in your sexual identity and your religious identity and your social and economic identities and your political identities and all of your family identities, but you're not trapped in them. But I work with this little five-line phrase. Prolong not the past... Invite not the future. 
don't alter your innate wakefulness. Don't fear appearances. There's nothing more than that. Don't prolong the past. Don't invite the future. Don't alter innate wakefulness. Don't fear appearances. There's nothing more than that. Now, when I'm sitting in interviews and somebody tells me a particularly difficult, emotionally engaging story, I can feel my fear of appearances arising. Because I can feel my emotional body going out and I feel my awareness going into that emotional mm. And at that moment, don't prolong the past, don't invite the future, don't alter your innate wakefulness, don't fear appearances, it's nothing more than that. And immediately there's a writing mechanism and I come back. It's a balance. And in relationships there is a balance. You don't ignore the personality stuff because it's still real to people. You fulfill it in the way you can without getting lost in it. It is up to the most conscious person in a relationship to create this space where the relationship can grow. And I'd be with Maharaji and I'd be very serious about something and he'd just giggle. And what I'm left with over the years are things like the giggle. I'm left with Maharaji going like that. I have that over my toilet. Because uh, Maharaji was for me that mirroring process and yet he was passionately alive. He was chiding and throwing things and screaming at people and laughing and holding and doing all that stuff. And at the same moment, it was just like a vast mountain of emptiness. We were all busy with our personality. Who can get his foot to massage it? Who can get closest? Who will he give a name to? Who will he love the most? There was a, a, a guy who I knew from the States and he, he was kind of unbalanced at that time because he had had a bad love affair. And, so I told him to come to India, and he came to India. Every time he tried to get near Maharaji, Maharaji would push him away, and I got really upset with Maharaji because this guy really needed something. So I brought him into the room, and I'd sort of aim Maharaji at him. You know, I'd <laughs> do this kind of thing. And Maharaji would ignore him completely, and I would get more and more furious with Maharaji. And then at one moment, Maharaji turned and attended to him, and within a week, that guy had moved into the top slot in the whole temple, and he was, he was going into the room when I couldn't, and I was hating that guy, absolutely detesting it. It was absolutely extraordinary. Because <laughs> Maharaji saw where my mind was caught, I mean, he, he wasn't, I'm just projecting this, he was just this silly old man, but I experienced him as seeing where I was caught, and he didn't think, I think I'll show Ramdas a lesson. 
his behavior, because each person in the room always thought his, the action was directed at them. Okay. Everybody in the room, that was the far out part. And I'm sure he didn't sit and say, well, now for him, I'll do this, and then for him, I'll do this, but if I move my hand this way, he'll get it, and he just did it.